Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at issue number 586, March the 3rd, 1996, pounds every Wednesday. The cover stars for this week, or should I say, in the bi-monthly cover stars for Kerrang! Bon Jovi, again. Sex, guns and rock and roll, Bon Jovi. Nice guy John gets mean on the set of his new film. Now I don't mean to disparage John Bon Jovi here and Bon Jovi the band. I'm sure there's some Bon Jovi fans out there. Look, I quite like Bon Jovi. I think they're a very good band. They've written some absolute bangers. But doing this podcast back, it's just never ending with Bon Jovi and Kerrang. Oh my God. I'm sure even Bon Jovi fans were getting sick of him at this point. It's just too much. I understand it, right? We talk about this all the time on this podcast. Bon Jovi sells magazines. You know, you put him on the cover, they probably sell a load that week. So I do get it. It does make sense. Just, you know, as a, I'm going to call myself an archivist. <laughs> I've never called myself that before. I'm just some goon that kept a, kept a few rock magazines and now I'm doing a podcast about it. But yeah, speaking as an archivist, um, yeah, even I'm bored of it. Come on. Come on, Kareng. You can't do anything now. We're talking about magazines from 1996. I'd just like a different cover band. You know, Girls Against Boys albums reviewed this week. Why don't you put them on the cover? That would have been great. Anyway, this week's issue. Terrorvision, hear their new LP first. Red Hot Chili Peppers, eight-page US tour pullout. Girls V Boys, Foo Fighters, Silverchair, Sepultura, Almighty and Ash. And if you're still listening after that small rant about Bon Jovi at the start, then welcome. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, then what we do here at Kerrang! Back Issues is we take an issue of Kerrang! that would have been out this week when the podcast is released, but in 1996. So, as I said already, we're looking this week at March the 3rd, 1996. We're looking at this issue of Kerrang! And when I say we're looking at it, what we do is we just go through the magazine, read the news, read the American news, interviews, feedback, albums, singles, all that malarkey. Basically, just try to give you a snapshot of what it was like to read Kerrang! that week. I did have a short idea originally before I did this podcast of just photocopying them and putting them up online for people to read. But then, nah, I thought that was quite boring. Also, I am a white male, so (laughs) it is in my DNA to do a podcast. (laughs) Why is it always white men that do podcasts? I don't know why. White men of about my age, I think. I'm 41. So, yeah. Anyway, if you would like to get in contact with us here, don't know why you would, at Karangbeck Issues, we can be contacted. Instagram, Karangbeck Issues. Twitter, Karangpod and email issues at gmail.com. Let's begin this week's issue before I say anything else that might offend anyone. I don't think I've said anything offensive. If you're offended about me saying that there was too much Bon Jovi in Kerrang, then at this point in your life, you probably need to get a bit of a backbone. This issue was created with the following stimulants. The new Rage Against the Machine album, Top Sleeves book You'll Never Make Love in This Town Again, Bruce Dickinson's Alien Detector Kit, Benji's Super Cheap Takeaway Sandwiches in Wardour Street, Delicious, the hot news that Doggy Dog are back for more gigs. Oatfish's somewhat misguided Girls vs. Boys Muriel episode. Mad Malcolm Dome's impending stint of jury service. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Starting this week where we always begin. News. Ash, the Irish upstarts have revealed that their next album contained songs about teenage sex. 
Speaking from Rockfield Studios in Wales, where the three piece are completing their full length debut album, cheeky frontman Tim Wheeler told Kerrang about the subject matter for the album. There's no revelations about the world in the lyrics, but there's quite a bit of teenage sex on there, and it's quite personal, he reveals. All the songs were written in the last four months. Although we've been trying to get the album together for a year, but I wrote all the lyrics here. It's taken me ages to get them together. The biggest problem is that I'm just really lazy. Musically, the threesome of Wheeler, bassist Mark Hamilton and drummer Rick McMurray have honed down their approach and are threatening to rock out big time. The album's miles away from the whole pop thing that we do, affirms Wheeler. There's some full-on rock songs on there. One of my favourite songs is called Oh Yeah. It's a reminiscent song with quite a lot of sex in it. There's one song that sounds like Finn Lizzy playing Sonic Youth. It's pretty amazing. At the minute it's called Starsky, but that's a working title. In fact, we're right in the middle of a title crisis at the moment. The band's title crisis means that they haven't got a title for the album, nor have they nailed down the track listing. Although their last three singles, Kung Fu, Girl From Mars and Angel Interceptor are expected to be included. The band's next single is called Goldfinger and is due out on April the 15th on the Infectious label. The song is apparently not named after the James Bond movie of the same name. It's just a working title that's stuck, explains Wheeler. We're not massively into the film. It's a good song, but I'm starting to get sick of it because I've heard it a million times. Ash's major studio debut has been plagued by recurrent bouts of laziness and the odd snowball fight. Working in the studio has been a bit weird because there's only so much you can do at one time or in 12 hours. This album is our first big statement and we put a lot into it. It's really important to us but sometimes we're the laziest band on earth at the moment. By about midday, we're ready to go down the pub. Bon Jovi and Alanis Morissette were both honoured at this year's Brit Awards which were held at London's Earls Court on February the 19th. Bon Jovi beat Green Day, Foo Fighters and Garbage to win Best International Group. Morissette won Best International Newcomer for which the Foo Fighters and Garbage were again also nominated. John Bon Jovi took time off from filming his new movie The Leading Man to collect the award. In his acceptance speech he thanked his wife Dorothea who joined him at the Brits, his children and Kerrang! editor Phil Alexander for putting me in his magazine. God, don't he put him in his magazine. Morissette performed Hand in My Pocket live at the Brits. She will play the following UK dates, London Shepherds Bush Empire, April 14th, 15th, 16th, Birmingham Aston Villa Leisure Centre, 18th, Manchester Apollo, 19th and Glasgow Barrowlands, 20th. On Friday, March the 1st, John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora will be appearing on Chris Evans' new TV show, TFI Friday, which will be screened on Channel 4 at 6pm, repeated later the same night at 11.55pm. Sepultura were forced to cancel their sold-out show at London LA2 when vocalist-guitarist Max Cavalera fell ill at the last minute with severe laryngitis and angry fans later rioted during the band's midnight sign-in session at the Virgin Megastore. The Brazilian foursome had to pull out of their special London show which sold out in less than three hours at the last minute because of Cavalera's condition but the remaining trio still managed to make their planned personal appearance at the Megastore which opened at midnight to sell copies of the band's new album Roots. However, drunken Seps fans on Oxford Street decided to vent their spleen by hurling bottles at passing buses and taxis. Consequently, the police were called in to quell what was, in effect, a mini-riot. According to a spokesman for Sepultura's record label Roadrunner, eight people were subsequently arrested. The good news for Seps fans though is that the band have rearranged the date for Wednesday, February the 28th at the same venue. More news next issue. Manic Street Preachers will release their first single since the disappearance of guitarist Richie James on April the 15th. Titled Design for Life, the song was previewed at London's Wembley Arena on December 29th when the band supported the Stone Roses. 
Bassist Nicky Wire has written the lyrics for Design for Life, which is said to be a polished ballad that features a string section and an anthemic chorus. The band have just finished recording their fourth studio album in Paris with producer Mike Hedges. It will include several lyrics that were written by James before he went missing. As yet untitled, it's due in May. The new material apparently sees the Manics merging the darker edges of their last set, The Holy Bible, with the more polished hooks of its predecessor, Gold Against the Soul. Among the other songs set to be included on the album are Enola Alone, Everything Must Go and Australia. The Manics will headline Leeds Town and Country on April the 8th. There's also a strong possibility that they will support Oasis at Manchester Main Road Football Ground on April 28th. Nirvana star Kurt Cobain's ashes may at last find a permanent resting place on the second anniversary of the discovery of his tragic suicide. Plans have apparently been approved by Cobain's mother Wendy O'Connor for his remains to be buried at Forest Memorial Gardens Olympia, halfway between Seattle and Cobain's hometown Aberdeen. A source of the cemetery said my bosses have been talking with Wendy, she's been here a few times. Word of the plan first came to light via a posting on the internet which was said to have been made by Cobain's widow Courtney Love. This stated that an open ceremony will be held at an unnamed cemetery in Olympia on April the 7th. In the past two years, one cemetery refused to have Kurt's ashes buried in its grounds, while another wanted a hefty annual fee for security and maintenance. Courtney still keeps some of the ashes in an altar at her Lake Washington Boulevard home and has had some of the ashes made into stupas, a Buddhist-style memorial. Pearl Jam have finally begun work on their new album, several months after stories have been spread that the record was finished and ready for release. The band are working in guitarist Stone Gossard's studio Litho in Seattle with producer Brendan O'Brien who helmed their Vitology set. Gossard recently told US internet magazine Addicted to Noise, Brendan's only been here for two days, but we've been in the studio for two weeks throwing idea after idea down. There's a lot of new ideas and I'm excited about that. I think we'll be done with it in a month or two, but you never know what's going to happen. We've got a bunch of stuff cut already from different sessions, so we're sorting mostly and cutting new songs. Gossard has kept himself busy recently, working with Firmador on their forthcoming debut album which is due for release soon through East West, and also with Weapon of Choice, who are signed to its Loose Groove label. On a uh, new LP, in addition, he co-produced a new as yet untitled album from Satchel with Matt Wallace. There's still no release date scheduled for the fourth Pearl Jam album, nor have the band confirmed any touring plans for this year. American news, starting this week with Don K in New York. Doggy Dog, who are currently in love with life after their huge success in Europe and now recording their highly anticipated second full-length album, the Butcher Brothers, Tom Suarez and Rap Wizard The Rizza will all produce tracks on the album and songs set to be featured include Isms, Sore Loser, Rocky, Numb and Bulletproof. There's no confirmed release date as yet, but the band's record company Roadrunner plans to push this one in the US in an effort to match the band's overseas breakthrough. The Allborough Kings album has sold more than 400,000 copies throughout Europe. Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, is Anthony Kiedis and Dave Navarro were among the stars hanging out and amiably signing autographs at the massive US launch party for Beggar's Banquet Records, held at the ultra-hip, multi-level knitting factory 
Hundreds were in attendance, grabbing the free food and open bar open until 4am, and watching live performances by ex-cult frontman Ian Asprey's new band, The Holy Barbarians, and legendary surf guitarist Dick Dale, last heard on the Pulp Fiction uh, soundtrack. Asprey's band delivered a tight psychedelic set, apart from their cover of the Beatles' Helter Skelter, which was a total disaster. Iron Maiden rolled into town for a sold-out show at the Academy, proving that the band still have a devoted hardcore following in the States. The crowd was wildly enthusiastic throughout the band's energetic set, with Blaze Bailey receiving a particularly warm response. The night before the show, a party was held in honour of Maiden manager Rod Smallwood's birthday at Muffins, a dance and billiards place on the east side. Bailey guitarist Dave Murray and Janet Gears and drummer Nico McBrain were there, but bassist Steve Harris was missing. He'd been up throughout the previous evening, having been stuck on a broken down bus in the wilds of New Jersey. No word on how many candles were on Rod's cake, observers reportedly had problems keeping count without the benefit of a calculator. Next up we have Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Seattle's most famous found themselves playing the Good Samaritans when rain nearly stopped play for Smashing Pumpkins last week. Although the Pumpkins made it to Seattle, their equipment trucks were trapped several hundred miles away in Portland amid stormy scenes which would reduce anyone not called Noah to tears. The band briefly considered cancelling the gigs but eventually decided to put out an appeal to borrow the necessary equipment instead. Step forward Soundgarden, Pole Jam and Alice in Chains. According to Smashing Pumpkins' road crew, the four-piece ended up taking the stage for their sellout shows at the Moore Theatre using a Les Paul guitar belonging to Stone Gossard, an amp borrowed from Soundgarden and various items belonging to Jerry Cantrell. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. Since Kaya split last year, singer John Garcia has formed a new band called Slowburn. The four-piece band played their big LA debut at the Dragonfly last weekend, According to fans at the scene, Slowburn sound a lot like Caius. They're heavy, said one longtime Caius fan in a new outfit, and they kicked over all their gear at the end. Meanwhile, keeping it in the family, ex-Caius bassist Scott Reader was doing the band's sound at the gig. Smashing Pumpkins are currently on tour in Japan, but that doesn't mean you can't find out more, more, more about your favourite rock band. If you have access to the World Wide Web, you can visit the Pump Linkdom site on spider.netropolis.net forward slash billy forward slash pumpkin It's an entire website devoted to the Smashing Pumpkins. There are essays like the end of the Smashing Pumpkins as we know them, and readers can even post questions and topics to be discussed by other pumpkin heads. And naturally, there are also pictures and sound clips to check out. Does a NoFX concert sound like a romantic place to say I do? How about if that concert's in Hawaii? That's almost exactly what happened for Epitaph Jeff Albarta, who married his fiancée on the Isle of Paradise. Albarta and many of the Epitaph gang spent the weekend in Waikiki for a major NoFX concert there. On the spur of the moment, Albarta and his fiancée decided Hawaii would be the place to take their vows. One day, they were knocking their boots in the mosh pit, the next taking their vows in the sand. Congratulations. Ever wondered what fabulous movie stars buy when they go record shopping? Well, if you're Daryl Hannah, you might pick up the Annie DeFranco release Not A Pretty Girl on CD. Or, if you're Drew Barrymore, you'll drop about $750 on a bunch of vinyl albums, most of them jazz. One more thing, you'll dye your hair. Both actresses were once flaxen bleach blondes. Now Daryl's hair is a punky pink hue, while Drew's locks are now jet black. Both are also said to be incredibly polite and courteous shoppers. We now come to the perennial cover stars for Kerrang! Bon Jovi. 
Sex, guns and rock and roll. That's what Phil Alexander finds when he steps onto the set of John Bon Jovi's new film. What's it all about? And why does John end up in bed with women he doesn't know? Read on. It's 11am Sunday morning. We're in London, down by the Thames. It's cold. Bouncing around in a trailer parked on the north bank of the river is John Bon Jovi, his lovely wife Dorothea, their two and a half year old daughter Stephanie and Karang. John is in town shooting The Leading Man, his second major feature film following on from his starring role in Moonlight and Valentino, which is due to hit Britain in March. He's been here for a month, living in South London in a rented house and working six days a week, 12 hours a day. By John's own reckoning, a day's filming actually translates to approximately two minutes of big screen action. His trailer is sparse and modest, not the luxury home from home you'd expect. The caravan is about 18 feet long with what looks like a bedroom at the back and a kitchenette with a small table in the front. His home comforts include a ghetto blaster playing Elvis Costello and a video player. On the table there are a few daily newspapers, a copy of Kerrang, the issue with Doggy Dog on the cover, and an autobiography of Darby Sabini titled The British Godfather. He was around 20 years before the craze, John informs us. Walking into the area where the cast of their trailers parked is the total opposite to being backstage at a Bon Jovi gig. There are no large men with walkie-talkies and security tattooed on their foreheads. You do not need 15 sticky passes to venture into the leading man's inner sanctums and another 15 to go for a piss in the caravan next door. Instead, the vibe is mellow and relaxed, just like any other Sunday morning. The perfect time and place to meet the real John Bon Jovi. John looks incredibly well for a man on a punishing schedule. He pours Kerrang a welcoming cup of black coffee and we shoot the breeze. The conversation ranges from Henry Rollins' role in Heat to filming certain parts of the leading man on various locations in London. John mentions last year's Kerrang Awards where Bon Jovi picked up two prestigious awards, Best International Live Act and the Hall of Fame Awards, and recalls the event in chuffed tones. Indeed, he was so chuffed that when it came to inviting people onto the set of his movie, he called Kerrang first. We're interrupted when John is told that he'll be required on set in a few minutes. Slipping into a set of Versace threads, John heads off to the makeup department for the odd bit of anti-glare face paint. A few minutes later, we're travelling towards the South Bank in the car with Paul Raphael, one of the film's producers. Raphael is the man who put Bon Jovi in the frame for his current role after seeing the rushes for Moonlight. According to the critics, despite Moonlight being panned, John was the best thing about it. His performance as a happy-go-lucky painter met with the approval of director John Duigan, a man whose track record includes such films as Sirens and The Year My Voice Broke, and who offered John a part in The Leading Man without an audition. We arrive on the South Bank facing the Houses of Parliament. The film crew are working themselves into a frenzy. A gaggle of extras mill around trying to keep warm. Among them are Dorothea and Stephanie, who will blend in inconspicuously with the rest of the extras in a rare moment of public exposure. The crew know the shot they want, and since this is a reshoot of a scene already been committed to film but junked, the heat is most definitely on. There's around two minutes to go before a producer yells turning over and the cameras begin to roll. We're about to see John Bon Jovi the rock star turn into John Bon Jovi the film star in the wink of an eye. As Big Ben starts to chime 12, we're turning over. The cameras are rolling and John has to begin his walk down the riverside. Kerrang is right by his side. In fact, it's impossible to tell the difference between John the rock star and John the film star in the brief five minute scene. There is no dialogue. Just a moody walk down the South Bank with John listening to a Walkman. One thing becomes obvious about John the man, sporting shades, clad in black and looking remarkably hard. He is a man who knows what he wants and has a shrewd idea of how to get it. It's the difference between determination, confidence and the willingness to try hard and the prospect of naked fear. 
If I were to worry about looking bad doing it, I wouldn't act, adds John later. I think it's uh, that blind faith in just doing what it is that I want to do that got me there in the first place. That's probably what got me to do my music in the first place. Somebody said to me before I made the first record that you had to make a record as good as the Rolling Stones is, because if you don't sell records then the record company's going to dump you. Now, with acting there's no, hey isn't that nice, John wants to get into acting because Keanu Reeves or Christian Slater would have wanted that part. So you better be as good, or don't think you're going to get the part. You're judged the same as the 18. There's no growth period, you have to be ready to go. In this case, and despite the cold, John is ready to go. Six takes later and the scene is in the bag. We head back to the trailer for a more than extended chat. Back in the caravan, John looks relaxed again. His daughter has become the centre of attraction. We're back in Sunday morning mode. Swigging an energy drink uh, called Rip Force and eating raisins, John's ready to talk about what's going on. His intake of health drinks and fruit are his way of keeping fit. Alongside his daily workout, in the back of the trailer his exercise bike and weights are a testimony to the latter. Somewhere back there, there's a guitar too. He's written three new songs in between takes during the making of this film. He sent them to his old buddy Aldo Nova to demo since Bon Jovi the band are absent. Well, I've got Aldo making demos in Montreal. I've got all kinds of stuff going on. I'm out of my mind. There's usually a bed back there, begins John, gesturing at the back of the trailer, but I threw the bed off and that's my studio now. I just sit back there and write. Away from the music though, we're here to talk about what could be Moonlight. Notwithstanding, John's first step into major league acting, but what attracted him to this particular role? The stretch states, John, just the idea that there was going to be a darker side to the character. The painter in Moonlight was comfortable in his own shoes, but it wasn't very different from me playing me. With this guy, he's a real SOB. John plays Robin Grange, a famous Hollywood actor who comes to London to work with established playwright Felix Webb, played by the actor Lambert Wilson on a West End play. Grange offers to help out the playwright who is having... Uh, an affair with a young actress named Hilary, played by Fandy Newton, profiled on the panel on this page. John picks up the thread. The playwright doesn't want to lose his castle, his dogs, his kids, his cars, but he wants to lose his wife. So I say to him, I'll tell you what, I'll get your wife to fall in love with me. I'm an actor. I can convince her to do this. She'll throw you out, and in doing so, you won't be caught as a bigamist, so you, uh, you'll be okay. So the playwright asks me what I want from this, and I say, hey, I don't want nothing. If you make the play or movie, then I'll star in it. So the playwright thinks, Christ, I win on every front. What you really find out is that he just made a deal with the devil. I take over his wife, his kids, his cars, and for spite, I take the co-star and give her a tumble. And in essence, I'm doing him because I've taken over his whole life and I blackmail him too throughout the rest of his career. He's now a part of me. I get him to write scripts for me and movies for me and I get him to win an Academy Award for me. It drives the guy a little crazy. It's a cool script. And it's a role that John clearly relishes. In fact, in The Leading Man, John manages to romp his way through countless bedroom scenes, revealing his newly shaven chest. There's also a scene which sees him brandishing a gun and looking hard as nails. All this sex, guns and rock and roll behaviour is all well and good, but the film company are keen to point out that John's role isn't a gratuitous display of evil. Nope, he's more of a charismatically scheming bloke who has a good time and a dodgy past. The fact that John has taken up smoking because the part demanded it speaks volumes about how far he's willing to push his acting. While he admits that he may not be a method actor who has to live out his part in order to feel it, he's using the lessons he learnt during his five years of acting classes to the full. The first time I went to classes I was sitting there with this playbook in my hand with my legs crossed and my head buried in the pages, he explains. I was really afraid to say anything to this guy. He was smoking a cigar with a beard and moustache and I was like, oh great, 
The greatest thing that he could ever tell me was really simple. Be in the moment, literally. Don't read the next sentence, read the first sentence. That was the biggest revelation for me in acting. There's other actors uh, like Daniel Day-Lewis and the great method actors who do it differently. I read that he sat in the wheelchair for three months during the making of My Left Foot and he wouldn't get out of the wheelchair. That's still a bit extreme for me. I'm still closer to holding the book and keeping my legs crossed than I am to sitting in the wheelchair. The whole thing is a learning experience. Acting, however, is the opposite of John's current musical position. Instead of calling the shots, John is at the mercy of the director. How does that feel? In the music business, we, Bon Jovi, have total control. Every aspect of it, from the marketing of the record, the album cover, to the videos, and the songs we write. But in the movie business, you have no control. You relinquish everything, and that's difficult because it doesn't mean that your vision and the directors are going to be the same. The only thing you can do is hope that your point of view may be taken as one of interest. So how different is the movie business to the music business? Is the film world really populated by hordes of air-kissing lovies, behaving like members of the cast of Absolutely Fabulous? It's very different. It's rock and roll. You're a lot more isolated. If you're in town, it's highly unlikely that Guns N' Roses are in the same town at the same time. So I don't know those guys. This is much more of a situation where the actors have known each other for years and run into each other over the years. In doing all those things, there is that lovey thing. Very often in those situations, I go and sit in a corner by myself and I'm supposed to be the star of the show. You really should be missing the personable, but it's a little foreign to me. It doesn't mean that I don't want to be sociable, but these people are really good friends who've known each other a long time. So it takes a long time for you to warm up to that. I don't know these people. It's not like the band where they're my buds. We're the leading ladies. I've been in bed with both of them and I don't even know them. That's nothing new, jokes John. While the film world may be a little alien to John, he has a long-standing love of movies. Ask him to pick his greatest film of all time and he'll infuse about The Godfather. Ask him to pick a movie he'd love to have starred in and he'll pick 70s western Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He isn't, however, a fan of action movies. He's a fan of Shallow Grave rather than Die Hard. His aim is to make films that have a hit factor rather than a multi-million dollar special effects budget. Those independent films are the kind of films I pay money to see and I'd like to make. The only big role I've pursued was in Heat. Other than that, I'm not into the big films. I don't pay money to see the boom, blow up the car movies. I don't rent those movies and I don't go and see them. I'm much happier going to see hipper films. I saw Trainspotting a week ago and I called the director and the producer immediately and said, please come down here and have a beer with me so they could tell me what they were up to. It blew me away. Before we can delve further into all things film orientated and discuss the next step for Bon Jovi musically, we're interrupted by John's daughter. Stephanie is tired and is getting bored. John inquires whether we can get back together later in the week to finish off the interview. We can. For now though, we bring things to a close. John pays Stephanie the attention she wants and exchanges a visit to eat fries and ice cream for a pair of kisses from the two and a half year old. The third kiss surprises John. What's that for, he asks. For ketchup, grinned Stephanie. John looks up, beaming. Rock star, film star, and more than anything, a proud family man. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! On location, this week, Murray Engelhart checks out Foo Fighters' new video. Foo Fighters take a swipe at American confectionery giant Mentos Mints in the hilarious video to their new single, Big Me. Filmed on location in Australia, the video shows the band sending up the Mentos TV ads in which someone always gets out of a sticky situation simply by popping a Mentos mint into their mouth. The Foo's version shows the band acting out free spoof ads with their very own Foo Tooth Mint coming to the rescue. 
The video was shot at two locations in Sydney between late December and early January during the band's visit to Australia as part of the annual Somersault Festival. The live footage was shot at the Annandale Hotel and the rest in the streets of the exclusive Sydney suburb of Kirribilli. Shooting was delayed at one point due to pouring rain and the band had to kill time drinking coffee in a nearby cafe. The video was all in all a far more pleasant experience for Foo's frontman Dave Grohl than working on Nirvana's 1994 long-form video Live Tonight Sold Out, which was a massive three years in the making. Grohl tells Kerrang. It started off with one director and Kurt working on it, and then there was another director. I don't know what the fuck took so long, but I really had so little to do with it that it wasn't until the last couple of months before it came out that I really got to see it. It had just been so long in the making. I'm sure it was supposed to come out years ago and never did. Finally it did, and it was a little strange. It was definitely difficult to work on it. It wasn't my favourite way to spend time, that's for sure. The Foos are currently making plans to head back into the studio and start work on their second album, the follow-up to last year's hugely acclaimed Foo Fighters. Most of the writing that's been done has been done on tour, says Grom, because we spent most of our time as a band on tour, and it's usually just done at sound checks. And, he laughs, we've had enough sound checks to write 10 new albums. We're just writing as many songs as possible, so that we have 10 or 12 really exceptional ones to choose from. We're paying uh, most of our attention to making sure that each song is different from the next. Some of them are 8 minutes long, very slow and very sappy. Some of them are 2 minutes long, really fast and just sort of goofy. We're just trying to mix it up so the next album will be exciting. I'm sure it will, and I'm sure things will be far more powerful in this album just because there are 4 people. It will just be enough of a difference that you'll be able to tell the first album from the second one, which I think is really important too. This one, I think, will have enough subtle differences to really tell the two apart, and I'm sure it'll be a pretty pleasant progression. And a now almost legendary double live Nirvana album that has still to surface? I haven't the slightest fucking idea, Grohl shrugs. I've been busy for so long that I don't remember what's going on with it. I'm sure someone told me what was happening with it maybe three weeks ago, but to me, that seems like three years. Satan's Little Helpers if they're not making girls pregnant and causing trouble in their native island, Punk Quartet Joyrider can be found in the pub, running up a £2,000 bar tab. Paul Brannigan meets the Naughty Little Devils. One time we played in Belfast and I got thrown out of the club before we were due to play. When I eventually persuaded the bouncers to let me back in, I got on stage and said, this next song's dedicated to the bouncers because they're all bastards. They wanted to lynch me, but I just thought it was hilarious. Joyriders Phil Wolseley laughs at the memory. From the outset, the Portadown Quartet existed to have fun and take the piss. The band formed in 1992 when frontman Phil hooked up with the only other people he knew in Portadown, with decent musical taste. Bassist Simon Haddock, guitarist Cliff Mitch Mitchell and drummer Buck Hamill, recently replaced by Carl Alty. Much fun has been had at other people's expense since then. This is the group who printed up t-shirts saying Belfast sucks again to wind up other Northern Irish acts. This is the group who appropriated religious imagery and paramilitary slogans on record sleeves. And this is also the group who annoyed sectarian bigots in their mid-Ulster hometown by busing Catholic and Protestant kids to their out-of-town gigs. There were never any fights, well not until we got on board anyway, Phil says with a smile. But the Joyrider piece de resistance, however, with a series of posters featuring a portly orangeman, as in Ian Paisley type Protestant figure, with a slogan, Reservoir Prods, did they not like that? Says Phil, apparently someone has bootlegged that image and is using it on a t-shirt. They sell thousands of them outside Ibrox, home of Glasgow Rangers Football Club, and we don't get a penny out of it. I can't really complain though, because I used to bootleg therapy t-shirts. What comes around, goes around I suppose. Curiously enough, 
It was through therapy, or more specifically their satanic teddy bear frontman Andy Kearns, that Joyrider got their first real break. Phil bumped into Andy wandering around the Reading Festival site in 1993 and passed on a tape. Andy was so impressed that he agreed not only to produce a single Dweeb King for the band, but also to release it on his own Dublin-based record label, Blunt. After a second Blunt single, Getting That Joke Now was chosen as a Kerrang! Single of the Week by guest reviewers Megadeth, no less. Major labels came sniffing around and the band signed up with A&M's subsidiary Paradox. Following these uh, three rather smart EPs, the quartet have just released their debut album, Be Special, a glorious collection of spunky, sharp and sarky hook-filled guitar nuggets, which will establish the band as the finest punky types on these islands. And rest assured that unlike some of our spiky-haired stateside cousins, you'll never hear Joyrider whining about the pressures of the music industry and how life sucks when you're successful. Joyrider still remember the days when punk rock was about having a laugh, We've got some serious lyrics, but at the end of the day, we want to entertain people, Phil explains. I went around Europe saying that we're not cartoon punks like Green Day, with coloured hair and stuff. And then this twat points as bassist. Simon walks in with his hair dyed red. Cheers, mate. But you wonder what these bands have got to whinge about. I like bands like Terrorvision and Therapy, working class lads who can appreciate their luck and just have a good time. If you're going to fuck off to the hotel with a book after gigs, then you shouldn't be in this business. The day we stop having fun, we'll pack this all in. There appears little danger of the good times coming to an end for Joyrider just yet, at least not while alcohol is still freely available in the civilised world. To say that Joyrider like a drink is putting it mildly. The band embarked on a mammoth drinking session with Ash and Therapy following the Lane Trio's triumphant homecoming show in Belfast at the tail end of last year. The following afternoon, with everyone else nursing king-sized hangovers, Phil was found sitting in Belfast's plushest hotel with a half-empty bottle of Buckfast in front of him. Well, it's part of the job, isn't it, reasoned Simon. One of our best drinking days was at Reading last year. I sat drinking Red Bull and vodka all day until they basically threw me out of the tent. Then I thought it'd be a good idea to steal one of the security golf buggies, and I actually started the thing with my front door key, which was obviously a sign that God wanted me to do it. I was sitting with a big skunk weed spliff hanging out of my mouth and the police were just clearing people out of my way. It was class. The four weeks spent recording Be Special in Bath threw up numerous opportunities for the band to indulge in more mischievous mayhem. Bath had never seen anything like it. We had a flat above this nightclub, recalls Phil, and for some reason we had the nightclub keys too. It gave us some very useful chat-up lines for American tourists. We'd invite young ladies back to the club and a great time would be had by all. We'd go to these raves and bring 30 complete strangers back drinking with us, Simon adds. By the end of our time there, the local drug dealers were shaking us by the hands and handing out their mobile phone numbers. Apparently, they'd never been so busy in their lives. Not surprisingly, the quartet's activities did not pass entirely unnoticed in the quiet town. Our producer, Stephen Harris, was working with Cud, who'd just been in Bath, and they said that there were rumours around the town that we'd got three girls pregnant and left an unpaid bar bill of £2,000. There's a pause as Phil and Simon contemplate this slight on their good name. Eventually, Phil breaks the silence. That's bollocks. It was closer to £3,000. With B-Special nestling in record racks across the land, our cheeky heroes will soon be doing what they do best, tearing around the country with a fistful of top smart tunes. Lock up your fridges, nightclubs and daughters. One of us always ends up copping off most nights that we're on tour and ends up telling the rest of the band we'll catch up with them at the next gig, Phil warns. Unfortunately, we never have any money on us, so we end up having to hitch 100 miles back, 
sitting steaming drunk in the back of Builder's van saying, now this is what rock and roll is all about. Beavis, you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Lives, and the first concert reviewed this week is Silverchair, supported by Everclear and Tripping Daisy at the Astoria London on Wednesday, February 21st. Reviewed by Liz Evans, this one gets 4 out of 5. London's Astoria is packed to the rafters with thousands of overexcited kids, trembling at the prospect of paying homage to heroes the same age as they are. Silverchair have rocked more than one nation out of scepticism, and Britain is no exception. Warming us up for Australia's answer to Nirvana are Tripping Daisy, a whacked out quartet from Dallas, hell bent on ripping up the kind of storm normally reserved for the headliners. With singer Tim DeLaughter resplendent in wig and full length red coat, which are later discarded to reveal Rock's newest pinup, they waste no time in establishing themselves as a spaced out, grooved up Junior Jane's Addiction. Even forthcoming single Piranha loses its tinniness live and all goes splashingly well. When Everclear explode into view, the crowd are psyched. Led by bottle blonde vocalist guitarist Art Alexakis, the trio literally leave holes in the ceiling. Their songs are immense, the rhythms constantly upbeat and breakneck fast wear you out. The spanked out tunes are tangled with aggression but executed with such precision that bruises never appear. A long gap follows Everclear, no doubt designed to drive the audience crazy. It works. When the lights dim and Silverchair slink on stage, the roar which greets them is stupendous. Three 16 year old kids with a tutor on the road and still growing into their trousers, taking their cues from Pearl Jam and Nirvana. They've studied the gawky stage moves, the bent double over fretboard attitudes, the guitar frenzied angst and the vital component of songs. They never slip up, chucking them out thick and fast, Leave Me Out, Pure Massacre, Israel's Son and a few impressive new numbers are all big and bursting with ambition. Silverchair could be your best mate, your boyfriend, your brother, you. Still, shy when the music stops but thoroughly in command of their stage when it's going. They've just brought down a couple more barriers between audience and idol. Let's hope they don't grow old before their time. Next we have Life of Agony supported by Roof Roof and Biff Naked at the LA2 London on Tuesday, February the 20th. Reviewed by Morat, this one gets 3 out of 5. Biff Naked isn't, which is a shame because some gratuitous nudity might have livened up an otherwise dull set. Something more intense was expected from this tattooed Canadian Hellcat who has enlisted the help of ex-Warrior Soul guitarist X Factor, but alas, the lass has less. Roof Roof are fantastic. Well, no actually they're a bag of tired old chords tied up with some old Nirvana riffs and a few worn out Green Day tunes, but they're going to be huge anyway so I'll get on the bandwagon early and say they're great. Surely we have enough torpid half assed rock bands without suffering this lot as well. True, they have a couple of inoffensive pop rock songs here and there, and as such, there's nothing wrong with that. But their delivery couldn't be more tiresome if it came with a free maths lecture. The only moment of fun comes when ex-Noisy Mother's Man Crusher launches a one-man stage invasion. New York Oik's Life of Agony liven things up when they elbow their way into through and through. The sound is poor to start with, but that is soon sorted, leaving them sharp if too quiet as they rumble, crunch and croon through material from both LPs, River Runs Red and Ugly. Somehow though Life of Agony never seem to really get going tonight. This is a lazy performance from a band who were much better when they supported Prong at the Astoria next door two years ago, and perhaps aren't trying so hard now because they're pulling decent crowds of their own. Vocalist Mina Caputo has largely given up those hunchbacked sneering Johnny Rotten impressions, 
but instead looks like they want to go for a nice lie down. And despite a great deal of irritating pattern between sums about what a wonderful audience we are, the band never come close to matching the crowd's crazed enthusiasm. Doubtless, this is just an off night for a normally excellent band, but we can do without a lifeless life of agony. The next review this week is Honeycrack supported by Stum at the Hop and Great Manchester on Monday, February the 12th. Reviewed by Paul Travers, this gets 4 out of 5. For the first few numbers, Stum's set comes on like Frank Bruno, big and strong, but at the same time stolid, workmanlike and frankly unexciting. They sound something like Fugazi with blokier vocals, but the songs lack bite and direction. Then, midway through, something changes. This is one you might recognise from your local rock disco Dead Panzer singer and they launch into something immense called Skydiver. Everything becomes a lot more animated with more groove, more firepower and the singer leaping about the stage like Billy Joe Armstrong after an intensive course of steroids. The tone of the songs remains relentlessly grim but with their angular hooks and sheer brute power tracks like Skydiver and Last Sad Song are as good and off the wall as anything on Therapy's first two EPs. It's probably unfair at this stage still to be comparing Honeycrack to you know who, but journalists are notoriously unfair wankers anyway, and in places uh, the comparisons are unavoidable. Take for example The Genius Is Loose, with its galloping rock and roll framework shot through with hard edge riffs and a catchy pop tinge chorus. It does sound a familiar description, but Honeycrack are a lot more than just the Wild Hearts Mark II. Their own sound is largely defined by their use of free guitars and harmonised vocals, leading to a veritable melody overload. If I Had a Life is the Beatles with bigger guitars, while Sitting at Home is more like the Beach Boys on PCP. It's a formula they'd already crafted before their first shows with Weezer just a year ago, and in the interim, they've honed it into a tight, smooth set that oozes class, yet retains a raw edge and spirit. They stomp, they swoop, Willie quips, and they also write damn fine songs. Pop with rock muscle or rock with pop melodies, same difference. And Honeycrack could well create a crossover stir if they ever get around to delivering the album. The next review is for 88 Fingers Louis, supported by Snuff and the Highbury Garage London on Friday, January 26th. This one is reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 3 out of 5. The support band tonight are billed as 99 Nipples Louis, but you can't pull the wall over the eyes of North London's punk hordes. Everyone knows that they are in fact reformed brick punker snuff, and they're absolutely ace. A glorious rite of snappy ear-tweaking tunes and ludicrous stage banter. Tunes like Martin and Defeat from their new uh, De Massa Musa De Bonk album. I always struggle with the <laughs> pronunciation of that one. Scarper around like hyperactive toddlers, all bright guitars and cheekily infectious melodies. Super Today is a blast with Dave's trombone and Lee's Hammond organ augmenting the fierce punk rock dynamics. The band's traditional penchant for silly cover versions is maintained with speeding renditions of the themes from The Likely Lads and BBC TV's cricket coverage, inciting manic stage diving. On this sort of form, Snuff will have little trouble reclaiming their Brit punk crown. At the close of the set, a Mohican punter stumbles towards the bar and promptly pukes up on the steps. Punk rock. It was never going to be easy for 88 Fingers Louis to follow Snuff's exhilarating display, but the quartet were about as exciting as a Tory party conference by comparison. Long delays due to equipment problems didn't help their cause, but frankly their anemic tunes weren't much cop anyway. The singer tried hard to generate some atmosphere, but within 15 minutes, those audience members who weren't heading for the exit were roundly abusing the guitarist for his horrible pointy guitar 
and calling him a carcass reject. Energy levels aside, 88 Fingers Louie had very little to recommend them. Moral of the story, choose your support bands carefully or you could end up looking a little bit silly. The last review this week is for At The Gates, supported by Dissection and Rain at Trillium's Newcastle on Tuesday, February the 6th. Reviewed by Liam Charles, this one gets 4 out of 5. Stumbling into the singer from the headline act on the way in, you know that Small Faces cover you were hoping for won't happen. Otherwise, this triple thrash treat isn't half as predictable as expected. Local heroes rain batter with a bass-heavy barrage. Disciplined enough to make many an international outfit sound like a sack of spanners. Gratuitous shifts in pace are never employed, and the blossoming time-time four-piece rarely descend into blurred hyperspeed frenzies. Unlike Dissection, who slip the leash every now and again and produce something which sounds rather like a washing machine on full spin. The bullet belt and studded armband image is a tad passe, while not many people these days are scared by songs with both the words Crimson and Death in the title. At the gates don't need to rely on silly costumes and hammer horror lyrics to terrify their audience. They've got singer Thomas Lindbergh, who looks like a wild man of the mountains. His voice is pretty fearsome too, and the hefty Swede barks over the stunningly heavy but precise Blinded by Fear and Suicide Nation from the colossal Slaughter of the Soul LP. One is forced to the conclusion that At The Gates are, in this field, the best in the world. They make Slayer sound about as threatening as the Osmonds. In last week's Kerrang, there was the start of a two-part uh, piece on Terrorvision. So last week we got to meet two members of Terrorvision, and this week we're carrying on and meeting the other two. So we begin with the sarcastic laid-back one. He was a tubby nerd at school, and he lives on a caravan park, and he tells Paul Elliott, he was a teenage glam rocker. Meet dreadlock television guitarist Mark Yates. On the outrageous James Bond-styled cover of Terrorvision's wicked new album Regular Urban Survivors, dreadlock television guitarist Mark Yates dangles heroically from a wire, a Bowie knife strapped to his leg, a speeding sports car beneath him, and a space shuttle blasting off in the distance. Pretty neat stunt all round. But Mark wasn't always so super cool. He hasn't always played the all-action rock and roll star. On the contrary, the schoolboy Mark Yates was a regular Norman no-mate. Very fat, quiet, hair whiter than paper is how Mark describes his younger self. I was dead shy, didn't like school, couldn't get out fast enough. It's the classic rock and roll story. Introvert kid spends 15 years failing to get his leg over, picks up an electric guitar and ends up beating the birds off with a shitty stick. It happened to Mark Yates and it could happen to you. I've been in band since I was 10, Mark reveals. I got my first guitar, then, uh, and if we resorted back to cavemen tomorrow, the one thing I'd miss would be electric guitars. The young Yates was weaned on the wild blues power of Jimi Hendrix, the primal death rock of um, Black Sabbath, and the rampant metal of Judas Priest. Priest were my thing when I was little. British Steel were the first album I ever bought. The first single I bought was Message in a Bottle by the Police, second hand. Teenage Mark sat in front of Match of the Day on Saturday night scrolling pictures of guitar-toting rock gods. I tried to draw electric guitars with little knobs and metal bits and stuff, he says. I didn't know what they did. It fascinated me. I do some of the band artwork now. Art was Mark's second love. And it was at Bradford College on a graphic design course that he met Lee Marklu. Lee and Mark hit it off immediately. They and a bloke called Mike formed Bradford College's most ridiculous minority group, the Glam Freaks. College was a brilliant laugh, Mark smiles after a gulp of K-Cider. There were three of us, me, Lee and Mark, who had long hair. Everyone thought we were hippies. Mark was soon trying to blag his way into Lee's band. 
He'd been in tons of bands by then, none more infamous than his first Brute Force. Two guitars, drums, no bass, says Mark of Brute Force's innovative sound. We weren't really metal. Crank wasn't even invented then. We couldn't play, but we just did the school disco and got dragged off. When I met Lee, he said his band needed a guitar player. I said, I'll do it. And he said, go fuck yourself. A week later, he let me in. We were called Vietnamese Babies. After Vietnamese Babies came a new band and a new drummer, one David Shuttleworth, shutty to his mates. We were called Masquerade. It wasn't really working. The singer were a bit of a twat. We were a three-piece and Lee sang for a bit, but you need a frontman. Enter Tony Wright. The lineup was complete, but the new band name, The Spoilt Brats, sucked. We weren't an awful tragic glam band, uh, like people say, Mark insists. We were fucking ace, but the name Spoilt Brats held us back, so we changed to Terrorvision. It's a really bad 60s B-movie about a brash American guy who gets a satellite for his TV and is so fucking obnoxiously big that it attracts space aliens who come down for his TV and eat his family. Terrorvision was snapped up by EMI, but success didn't come overnight. When their debut album Formaldehyde came out in 1993, Terrorvision couldn't get arrested. Mark stayed cool. I'm really glad the way it's gone. We've built it up. We've never even looked for a fucking deal in the first place. We do it because we enjoy it. So when Oblivion went through the roof and four more hits followed, how did celebrity change your life? Not a lot really. You'll be in a pub in town and you hear somebody you went to school say, oh he's changed now and I've never even fucking seen him in the first place. I haven't changed, not consciously. People think you're rich, and that's what upsets them. That's why I'd never do the lottery. If you won it, it'd be a fucking nightmare. If you don't buy the pub around, you're a tight cunt. And if you do, you're a flash cunt. I drink in Leeds now. I can't be arsed with it. No luxury shag palace for Mark Yates. He's happy living in a caravan in the Yorkshire countryside. It's a caravan park, a holiday resort in the middle of nowhere. There's sheep eating grass outside your door. It's fucking great. I've had people try to find out where I live, which doesn't bother me. I'm a hospitable bloke. Did you move into the caravan to stay down to earth now that Terrorvision are a seriously big band? I don't really think uh, we are a really big band, to tell you the truth. In a lot of places, people haven't heard of us. People at the caravan park go, oh, you're in a band then. What are you called? Terrorvision? Never heard of you. A lot of people think there's a big plan to this, Mark chuckles. There's not. We couldn't change. I only know a certain amount of chords. The clumsy hyperactive one. He's thrown himself off bridges and down cliffs. He wishes he was still a kid and he tells Liz Evans he'd like to buy a motorbike but his mum won't let him. Meet catastrophic television frontman Tony Wright. It's cold, it's grey, it's windy, it's lunchtime and Tony Wright Lead singer with the poptastic television wants to look at the mummies in the British Museum. He lasts about five minutes, having discovered the ancient, disturbing content to some of Egypt's pyramids. Tony is duly freaked out and heading for the pub. Tony Wright is the first rock star I've ever taken to the British Museum, but then he's not yet average rock star. Seeing as he fronts television, this shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. Yet compared to party beast drummer Shutty and guitarist Mark Yates, Tony would be happier in a sandpit or running around a museum, unless it's full of scary things, than a bar. I remember being a kid, because that's the best way to be, he grins, an odd statement considering that when he was a kid, he had a death wish. He wanted to be a stuntman and involved himself in one accident after another, causing his mother no end of stomach-churning stress. His recklessness manifested itself in playgrounds, on top of cliffs, in the orchard where he used to hang out with his mates, and of course, in the street outside his house. Miraculously, he never sustained anything more than a few cuts which needed stitching. Obviously, 
God wanted him to sing for television. Once I were trying to impress these lasses and I dived off a six foot high climbing frame and landed on my back. I were that winded I couldn't even say ambulance, I just lay there mouthing it. Another time, he laughs, taking a sip of scotch, I fell off the top of some rocks in Blackpool in me underpants. When I were on holiday with my grandma, the same thing happened there. I winded myself so badly I couldn't say ambulance. As Tony Wright grew up, so did the accidents. When he was 15, Wrighty nearly drowned after a canoe crash at notorious danger spot Selbury Toll Bridge. And during Terrorvision's first tour, he leapt off a flyover bridge when he was drunk and scratched his entire body on the tree below. Since then, he's cut down on his drinking, but he's looking forward to getting old so he can smash up overpriced crockery in department stores without getting arrested. During his days off, Tony opts for a quiet life, hanging out with his girlfriend, going to the movies and cycling up to the Yorkshire Moors, although even that doesn't keep him out of casualty. I love going out on my mountain bike, Tony glows. I'd like a motorbike, but my mum says if I had one, she'd pay someone to steal it from outside my house because I've broken enough bones on my mountain bike. Tony's happy-go-lucky, accident-prone attitude permeates every aspect of his life. He never analyses his success, he simply enjoys it. If he gets spotted in the street, he feels excited, giddy and embarrassed. He loves dressing up like a prat and flinging himself about on stage in front of thousands of people, and likens it to miming with a tennis racket in your mother's clothes when you were a kid. He doesn't have an ambition and exists in a state of limbo, although he thinks he might be an explorer in 10 years' time. He'd like to do away with money and replace it with a barter system. He later advises me to dance for a new pair of shoes. Although, if he had 30,000 quid, he'd buy an atoll, which is an island with a sea in the middle. Strange. Traditional education appalls Tony Wright because it ignores the value, imagination, and in his book, barefaced enthusiasm counts for more than any amount of cool or brains. In fact, Cool is a word which bears no relation to Tony Wright whatsoever, which probably ironically makes him cooler than most. Most people join bands because they want to be cool. Obviously, this was not Tony's objective. He'd got into music for his older sister and discovered Led Zeppelin and Free. He first joined a band after a cider drinking and banana pill smoking session down the park, following his mates' suggestion that he reply to an ad for a singer in the local paper. I were only 15 and the ad said 16 to 22 year old wanted, but I went anyway and I sang Wishing Well by Free. The rest of the band were all much older than me, but they were all alright. So I did this gig with them. We called ourselves Subject, which isn't very good really, is it? I was with them for about 6 months, but then the guitarist moved away. After such an inauspicious start in the entertainment business, Tony continued to amble around Bradford's pubs and began bumping into Mark Yates, Lee Marklew and Shutty. One night, he stood in for Mark at his DJ spot at the Wheat Sheaf pub, not long after he asked Mark if he could join the Spoiled Brats. He told me to fuck off, but I went for an audition with him, and I had to sing Teenage Kicks by the Undertones, only I didn't sing it, Lee did, and I just sat on the drum riser. Afterwards, they all went, right, what do you think? And I said, well, I haven't done out, but no one really cared. Luckily, Tony could do it, rather well as it happens. Nowadays, he's a full quarter of the television experience, bounding around on stage like an over-exuberant puppy dog. But even today he says he wouldn't, couldn't continue if he suddenly stopped enjoying it. After years as a car park attendant, a printer and working in graphic design, he has very definite ideas about job satisfaction. I'd sell bread if I didn't like this. I know people say it's your career, but it's no good if you don't like it. I'd break down. It'd do my head in. Tony Wright, just like a kid. Feedback, and this is where we find out what pissed off the grungers this week. 
We start this week with a letter of the week. What the fucking hell do you think you're playing at? You produce a special Valentine's Day issue of your great music read and there are no pictures whatsoever of the absolutely wonderful shaggable horn monsters by the names of Shirley Manson and the gorgeous Shauna Uzel, apart from the one microscopic little picture of Shirley. You must be out of your mind. What we really need are more regular pictures or posters of these two most bonkable rock babes, preferably in the shower or taking part in naked women's mud wrestling. We beg you to include more of what we want and less of sad bands like Green Day. Ross and Damien, Rochester. I'm so glad that Kerrang decided to give that incredibly sexist uh, letter of the week, the letter of the week. Ridiculous. I mean, I guess it's 1996, right? That's how things were. After I saw one particular album featured in your recent 100 Greatest Rock Albums of All Time booklet at number 52 and heard that the band in question were modeled on Pearl Jam, I went out and bought their debut album immediately. The band are, of course, Silverchair, and the album is Frog Stomp. Having seen their pictures in Kerrang, you have to forgive me for thinking they look like three little spotty pubescent tossers who are simply flirting with the idea of being in a rock band. But I was pleasantly surprised when listening to their album to hear that their sound was both powerful and musically mature, and I would like to take back all my preconceptions of them. Well. That was until I heard they were rebelling against their Pearl Jam clones image by preparing a much heavier and weirder second album. Why? If you've sold in excess of 1 million copies of your debut album and created what has turned out to be the best alternative rock album in 95, kicking shit out of the Foo Fighters and Alice in Chains albums and leaving the Chili Peppers collective style and Mad Season for Dead, why change your style? Being compared to Pearl Jam isn't an accusation, it's a compliment. Eddie, Seattle. Honeycracks Sound Like The Wild Hearts was the label attached to the band when they first emerged. Let's face it, the King of Misery 5 minute single did bear a passing resemblance, but the new single Galway should rid them of that tag forever. The Wild Hearts would never release anything this shite. Long may Ginger and Co rule. Seth Bolslam. I've just heard that the Sex Pistols are coming back. At first I thought that it was the best thing to happen this year because I would finally get to see them live. I'd give my right arm to be able to see Johnny Rotten anywhere. But then I thought better of it. Apart from the fact that the four of them with original bassist Glenn Matlock are now about 40, what terrifies me was the fact that this new wave of US punk which is about as punk as a saucer, there is a very big possibility that the best punk band ever will be listened to by 12 year olds while they hold their mum's hand. I can't think of anything worse than the Sex Pistols being turned into Green Day or Rancid. I would also like to know why the hell every time Kerrang has something to say about the Sex Pistols, you always print the same bloody photo from the God Save the Queen video. Malcolm McLaren, Rotten City. What do we have in this week's issue of Kerrang? Courtney Love was fondled by security guards. Ooh, uh, Pearl Jam are being sued. Good. Ozzy hates the French and can swear a lot. The Beastie Boys don't like Joe Elliott's hair. Blimey. What the Flaming Lips bought with 20 quid. Wow. When Richie Sambora threw up. Gosh. Plus a mine of fascinating facts about our favourite star's dream date. Ah. Uh, I thought Kerrang! was a magazine about rock music and not about what Nick Holmes would do with Joe Brand. Yuck. It's an insult to your reader's intelligence. No wonder everyone thinks rock music is a laughing stock and helps to promote the cliched image rather well. David Calvert, London. I recently bought Kerrang! and noticed an item in American News on a fanzine called If This Is Seattle, Where's Eddie's House? It was written by two fans and this is fucking terrible. If people find out the guy's address, then he could be in big trouble. There are fucking psychos out there you know. Over the last couple of years, Eddie Vedder has been responsible for some of the finest sounds in rock. He has respected his fans and given them the best. 
So show some fucking respect for him. Pearl Jam are my favourite band, but I don't go tormenting the guys. As Mike McCready said, our band won't exist if things like this continue. And I'm sure that no one out there wants that to happen. A Jam fan, London. Just putting my tuppence worth in here. If the person that wrote this letter into Kerrang actually read what they said, the uh, fanzine, um, which is called This Is Seattle, Where's Eddie's House, doesn't actually include Eddie Vedder's address. Blimey. We'd like to say a few things about the Apes, Pigs and Spacemen and their scheduled gig at Louisiana in Bristol on February the 16th. No thanks to Send No Flowers Management for apparently pulling them out of a second Bristol gig within a week. We want to see them as much as the rest of England do. No thanks to the people at the Louisiana for pulling the plug on Apes, Pigs and Spacemen because their venue could seemingly not cater for a serious rock gig. What are they supposed to do there then? Thanks to the Apes for being such great guys. We will definitely come and see you again. The Four Maces, Bath. Ill communication. I forgot to mention at the start of this episode that there are no singles reviewed in Kerrang! this week. So let's move on to the last word. The ultimate questions on life, sex and death. This week's Sepultura main man Max Cavalera faces Morat. Last time you travelled by public transport. In Salvador when we were shooting for the Roots Bloody Roots video, one of the shots on the video is on a bus. Last time you got drunk. Last night, depends what level you mean. On New Year's Eve I got pretty wasted because we went to this place called Sedona, which is an Indian reservation in the Red Rock Mountains. I was there with my family and everybody just went for it. I got real drunk and it was great. Last time you got a tattoo. A month ago, it was a neck tattoo done by this guy called Paul Booth. Me and Gloria got one at the same time. I still need to get Igor on my hand, otherwise he's going to grow up and beat the shit out of me. Some guy looked at the Zion tattoo and said, I know why you picked that name. It's because uh, backwards it spells noise. Last time you went inside a church. That was also during the shooting of Roots. The church in Salvador had some really cool gargoyles, but the people of the city didn't want them and they retaliated. That was like 100 years ago. Instead of removing them, they just wiped their faces off. We filmed the gargoyles for the video. Last time you argued about politics. Probably one of the last interviews I did. Last time you did something embarrassing on stage. Well, it wasn't really embarrassing. When we went to shoot the video, the percussionist was rehearsing uh, with like 100 or 200 people watching. So it was kind of like a show. He called me up on stage and I'm like, shit, it's a bunch of drummers. There's no place for me here. The percussionist started playing new song Rata Mahata and we tried to play along with a CD. But because all the drums jump around, the CD kept skipping and stopping. We tried it three times and I finally looked at them and said, it's not working, I'm going to the bar. Last time you got in a fight. Real fist fight? That's got to be in Brazil. The bar that we used to go to is where all the punk losers hang out and this guy started giving me shit about Sepultura, calling me a rock star because we've been out in Brazil. I'm not going to take shit from this punk calling me a rock star just because I went out of Brazil and he didn't. Actually, it was pretty bad because I was real drunk. I started fighting with him and the security guy and all the people in the bar were my friends. The security guy just grabbed his arms and I know it was a real coward thing but I grabbed a rock and just splattered his face. Then the security guy threw him out. That was real bad. Last time you bought an item of clothing. In Salvador, I bought a couple of shirts. I'm going to buy some soccer shirts while I'm in England because you just can't get them in America. Last time you did something you regretted the next day. I don't know, it's been a long time. Most of the time if I do something I regret, I don't remember it. Gloria has to remind me and I have to call people and apologise for something I don't remember. Last time you stayed up all night. Probably in Phoenix at home, just drinking and talking and listening to CDs. And then you suddenly realise you're drunk as fuck, it's light out and you're going to have a terrible day. 
Last time you told a lie. Probably going through customs. When they ask all their stupid questions. We came to the UK as tourists, but that's a lie because we're working. Last time you wanted something you couldn't have. I wanted to get an endorsement from Umbro to get free stuff, but I don't think we're going to get it. Fuck it. Last time you threw up. I throw up mostly every day because I have an ulcer. I don't puke blood, but I puke a little every day. Last time you gave money to charity. Most of the time in America, I really don't do that shit because I think it's fucked up. All those bullshit McDonald's charities, it's a bunch of crap. I think the last time was when me and Paolo were in Brazil and there was a bunch of street kids outside the bar at midnight. Giona kept chasing them away, so me and Paolo decided to buy them a whole round of burgers and shit and then told them to go away. At least they got to eat. Last time you went to a gig. Probably Deftones and Life of Agony, but I didn't stay for headliners and Franks. Definitely not. Last time you got angry. Yesterday, some chick doing an interview tried to tell me that she knew for sure that the nail bomb Max's sideband vocals were faked. I got really angry at her, like, if you want to believe it's fake, then that's your fucking problem. I love the album like it is. The people who bought it like it because it's so fucking raw, and yet it's got some fucking terrible reviews in Germany. How long can you last? You can last for as long as you're doing what you like. If you're not doing what you like, it'd be like a Kurt Cobain kind of shit. A bullet in your brain would be the best thing. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Albums. And the album of the week this week is Girls Against Boys with their album House of Girls Against Boys. This one is reviewed by Paul Rees and this gets 4Ks. And also, this album is the soundtrack to this podcast. I didn't want to listen to Bon Jovi anymore because they've been on the cover just far too much. I'm still moaning about Bon Jovi, aren't I? Anyway, let's talk about Girls Against Boys. Welcome to the house of Girls Against Boys, in which Girls Against Boys wave their final goodbyes to cult them before hitting major label pay dirt for a cigarette fog and across a table strewn with broken bottles and overflowing ashtrays. If you've been here before, via the jagged drone of the excellent Venus Luxure number one album or the deliciously debauched Cruise Yourself, you'll know exactly what to expect, only more so. House of Girls Against Boys is perhaps the band's definitive diary from the gutter, a black-hearted journey through one night on the piss and on the pool in a seedy neon-lit downtown right up to the bleary-eyed confusion that greets the first morning light, scratching a five o'clock shadow and draining the last glass of cheap liquor. It is at once darkly seductive, eerily evocative and seriously sinister, a record that carries a single mood of decadence and menace from its swaggering introduction to its haunting conclusion. It picks you up in a yellow cab, whisks you down the same streets that De Niro drove in Taxi Driver, pushes you past the pimps, the whores and the deadbeats on the sidewalk into a nicotine-stained after-hours strip club, chats you up, gets you laid, shoots you full of speed and caffeine and finally drops you off with a dull ache creeping up your spine and a blinding white light flashing on and off in your head. Surefire and Click Click are your starting point. Guitars waving like switchblades across the thumping pulse of Johnny Temple and Eli Janney's basses, leaving Scott McCloud's Marlboro sneer to pick its way through the debris. Crash 17 X-rated car drops the first pill against a frantic confused buzz and a strange underground surf guitar before Disco 666 slips into an ominously trashy funk groove. McLeod coming on to his prey and cutting her down in the same breath. I'm a sucker for your every move, but there's nothing in your mind. With his most sardonic lounge lizard bark, 
Then, spinning her through the pure sleeves and sex of life in pink and the kind of music you like and the amphetamine fried cut and paste shreds of Vera Cruz. You emerge blinking into the half-light of the most instantly familiar Girls Against Boys soundtracks, the humping rhythms of another drone in my head, the speed-fueled rushes that lurk within Cash Machine, the last intoxicated blast of Wilmington. Which leaves you to nurse an evil hangover to the disconnected noises and ghostly vocals of the supremely fucked up Zodiac love team. Also, the one soundbite to promise that next time, Girls Against Boys will be ready to set off on a different ride. For now though, House of Girls Against Boys takes you on one last vicarious thrill-seeking trip to the underbelly of their town. Press play for a good time. The next review this week is for the album Beat the Bastard by The Exploited. Reviewed by Morat, this one gets 4Ks. Stand aside, offspring and other pretenders to the punk throne and quake in your boots if you try not to shit your pants, it would be a bonus because the exploited are back like a brick through your window. Fans of this berserk Scottish four-piece will know what to expect from this, their first offering since 1990's awesome opus to Massacre, but the uninitiated will probably work out from the subtle title Beat the Bastards that this is not a surprise outing into AOR territory with an album of touching balance, rather the opposite, as if you needed to be told. Kicking off with a brutally brilliant title track, which is soon to be a single, Mohawk frontman Madman Watty Buchan and the lads vent their spleen in no uncertain terms in an unrelenting barrage of hate and noise. Remember, this is the band that Slayer chose to cover, not one but three songs by, and Slayer are hardly a country and western outfit. Again, the band have been helped enormously by the production job of Colin Richardson, now better known for twiddling machine heads knobs, let's hope Rob Flynn had a bath first. But you get the feeling that even if the album had been recorded in what he's outside lav, like a couple of previous albums were, songs like Law for the Rich and Fight Back would pound you into mush anyhow. The simple reason for this is that the exploited mean it. They may not always be right, but there is an unflinching conviction in what they're doing and there is absolutely no compromise. And when the current punk trend has passed by again, the exploit will still be here, bigger and badder than ever. Buy the album, or we'll tell them where you live. And lastly this week, we have the album The Grey Race by Bad Religion. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this one gets 4Ks. Bad Religion are the band who will not die, whether you like it or not. Much like your birthday, their albums are a yearly treat and you mostly know what you're getting. It's superbly sung melodic punk with the accent on songs rather than pretending to be hip or nails hard. People would tell you that Bad Religion's songs all sound the same, that they've sold out by signing to a major label, that they're far too tuneful to be punk or that they're just a bunch of old men hopelessly out of touch with the real world. All very much a matter of opinion. But the real question with The Grey Race is whether Bad Religion can still shine without guitarist co-writer Brett Guritz who left a year ago to concentrate on his booming Epitaph record label. Happily, the answer is yes, although whether this album actually tops or equals its Stranger Than Fiction predecessor is hard to say. The Grey Race is the sound of a band reasserting their worth rather than coming up with something earth-shattering. They're proving that they can sound exactly the same without Brett Guritz, and new guitarist Brian Baker has obviously fitted in just swell. The Grey Race itself opens in predictably up-tempo fashion, all speedy drum rolls and perky batterings, with great hooks, as always, from singer Greg Graffin. The man's voice and intellect splattering lyrics have always been the band's major strengths. Even would-be bad religion copyists can't equal his skill. 
Fans will be in familiar, blissful territory with tracks like Parallel and Punk Rock Song, while the album's gemstone comes with a walk, a melodic mid-paced fuck you. It really should be this album's hit single. The band also make what could loosely be described as surprise moves on the brilliantly energised 10 in 2010 and the incredibly catchy Come Join Us. However, the odd track like Pity the Dead or Victory do see Bad Religion treading water by their own standards. They could knock tunes like these out in their sleep. The Grey Race might not be the best Bad Religion album in the world ever, but it's still a cure for insomniac. Charts and the number one album this week is Perpendicular by Deep Purple. Number one in the singles charts is Roots Bloody Roots Sepultura and number one in the indie LP charts is Heavy Petting Zoo by No Effects. The readers top 10 this week come from uh, Omar Al Timoney from Milton Keynes. Their chart begins one clown call, two your mistake fear factory, three seasons in the abyss slayer, four death certificate carcass, five block machine head, six escape to the void Sepultura, seven god of emptiness morbid angel, Eight, Use My Third Arm Pantera. Nine, Stigma Alive Ministry. And ten, Left Hand Path Entombed. Star Trek this week come from Dog Eat Dog main man John Connor. Their chart begins one, Anything by Goldfinger. Two, Root Sepultura. Three, Grassroots 311. Four, Mantra Shelter. And five, Anything by the Genius Flash Geezer. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues. Yeah, it's the new Metallica album and we've heard it. Full story and world exclusive interview. Plus, Bon Jovi, Kerrang! visits John's London house. Wow. Terrorvision, new album reviewed. Dog Eat Dog, hardcore fashion doggy style. Black Crows, Chris in the Dock on US Court TV, plus Presidents of the USA, Smashing Pumpkins, Bruce Dickinson, Paradise Lost, Silverchair, and Sepultura. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I really, really do appreciate it. If you'd like to leave a review for this podcast, then please do leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Music. Um, If you can give us 5Ks, not 5Ks, 5 stars or whatever it is, that would be great. I'd really appreciate that. Uh, If you want to leave a bad review, please don't do that. Uh, It's not very nice, is it? Anyway, we'll be back next Wednesday as usual. I look forward to talking to you all then. Bye for now.